Dear ones, welcome to Secret Gardening with Sarah. That beautiful song is by Taylor Linhart. Isn't it lovely, relaxing, and poetic? Go listen to it in its entirety. In fact, listen to the whole album called River House. It starts with the song Everything, saying, This is going to change everything. And just like Easter promises us, Jesus does change everything. This Easter tide, let's strive to enter into that truth. I hope you find this to be a place of seeking beauty, delight, and rest. I hope you feel loved and learn a thing or two about gardening with me. Those sound like good words this morning, beauty, delight, rest. (laughs) But sometimes I diminish good words by writing them off. It's like to soften my heart to them feels too challenging. I sense this part of me that is stemmed in unbelief. It's that part that holds on to pride and anger and hiding and doubt. It's a self-protection of sorts. The past few days I have woken up early. I know immediately that I'm awake and no point in trying to go back to sleep fully awake. A few times I've had stressful dreams. Today I woke up in a giggly mood. I don't know why some mornings greet me in anxiety and others are full of grace (laughs) and the grace of giggles at that. But I'm paying attention. Yesterday was long. My wrists are hurting me from painting. My to-do list is scalding me, not scalding, scolding me into a dark, shameful corner. My body is tired and achy from moving furniture with my sister into her new home. My mind is racing. I grabbed my phone this morning first thing. I'm not proud of it, but I did. And then that to-do list started yelling at me again. I need help. A truer help than a phone can bring. So this is episode 8, Garden Protection, Thick Skin, Part 1. should have protected my plants. I planted my vegetable garden seeds last week and some flowers for my neighbor this week because the spring has been a warm one so far and it felt like time. This week, little cotyledons of little seeds are popping up for our radishes, arugula, rainbow chard, and spinach. Cotyledons are those little beginner leaves that come out first. Technically, the definition is an embryonic leaf in seed-bearing plants, one or more of which are the first leaves to appear from a germinating seed. Oh, that's what they're called. Those little leaves I've tended to doodle my whole life. I just saw the zucchini ones break the seal of the earth yesterday. They had pushed through like it took a great effort, and now they're resting in accomplishment and stillness. Other seeds are resting in their beds beneath the blanket of soil in the comfort of the dark and warm place, preparing for them to reach out into the world for their breakthrough. 
At the beginning of the week, I weeded the beds for those new flowers with my sister. I remarked to my sister that I wondered what in the world a redeemed weed would look like as I frustratingly dug out stubborn weeds, those weeds that teach you the meaning of tenacity. I wondered if they would be made new into their true form, redeemed into a greater purpose. Who knows? Would they even be there at all? I looked out to the beautiful wild violets that terrorize my landscape. They have such visual beauty, but, oh, they like to choke out good plants. Their roots are insanely strong. And I wonder, what happened to them to be so self-protective? Many years ago, I remember musing over dandelions. Of course, the seed stage of that flower is a whimsical image we all cherish from childhood. We want to pick them and blow the seeds as wishes into the world, don't we? I used to run to them as a kid. To find one perfectly intact was a treasure. Do you remember the first time someone told you that dandelions were not good? That they were, in fact, a weed? I don't remember the details, but I remember feeling like something had gone terribly wrong. No, no, no. These beautiful things could not be bad. They are my golden treasure wish-making delights. They are the stuff and fluff of daydreams in abundance. Are they not? When I was in college, I learned about discipleship, evangelism, and spiritual multiplication. I thought of dandelions as fruitful Christians. To the world, they might seem foolish and maybe even offensive, but they keep on reflecting the sun with their golden petals that are made in the image of that shining star. They die by spreading their seeds, but the result is more radiant blooms exponentially grown. They have a deep taproot and are found just about all over the world. Grown-ups are more prone to dismiss them, but children run to the message of the dandelion. Some even rub the flower on their arms or chin to discern if you like butter. <laughs> of course, as all metaphors do, this one breaks down and is not perfect because, after all, a dandelion is still a weed. A few years ago, we visited my aunt and uncle in Iowa. My uncle took us on a morel mushroom hunt. Have you ever had a morel mushroom? Well, they're tasty. My appetite was whetted as he told us about the large load he found last year. I was hungry for them. We were eager to find the little delicious, fun guys. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. And we set out into the wild, cool air of the woods. We scoured the surrounding woods for hours as he told us a lot of stories. And we got reacquainted. You see, it had been several years since seeing him last, and he had a lot to share. Looking under leaves and around stumps and branches and all around those woods, we were imagining seeing these kind of brain-like textures of the morel. We searched and searched. I kept thinking I was seeing one to be quickly disappointed, to find not one hint of a mushroom. Not one hint. Hours later, we were tired and disappointed. Nothing. Nothing. You see, I thought that my uncle had gone before us and had already seen them and was just, you know, wanting us to find them, kind of like a scavenger hunt for a child. I assumed he was taking us on a trail that led to the morel horde. We were not children, but all 20-something adults, and this assumption was just that, an assumption. I was wrong. He reckoned that it was about time for mushrooms to come out, but he didn't know. 
He just thought it'd be fun if we went on a mushroom hunt together. We were disappointed, and my appetite was denied the treasure of the morel mushroom. <laughs> when we arrived back to the house, my aunt noticed the general disappointment clouded over all of us and singled me out as the most disappointed. She knew my hunger and excitement being squashed was getting to me, much like a child. <laughs> I couldn't hide my emotions at that moment. She, with a twinkle in her eye, remembered something she used to do with her family years ago. You want some mushrooms, Sarah? I can make that happen for you. I'll get you some mushrooms. She went outside and came back with a stash of dandelion flowers. She smiled and almost magically giggled as she thought about what she was up to. I don't remember exactly how she prepared them and what she mixed into the flowers, but she breaded them up and fried them up, and they looked a little bit like mushrooms. She said that they used to make mushrooms like this when she was younger, and they had an appetite for mushrooms, but none could be found or afforded. Did you know that dandelions are edible? I didn't. Well, they didn't exactly taste like mushrooms, but the way she loved me, by taking the time to make those little dandelion mushrooms, will forever live in my memory. <sighs> this morning, I thought of the day a few years ago. I found a, a kindred spirit in reading about the early 20th century missionary and artist, Lilius Trotter. She drew a little picture of a dandelion with seeds starting to blow off into the page in her journal with these words. Measure thy life by loss and not by gain. Not by the wine drunk, but by the wine poured forth for love's strength, standeth in love's sacrifice. And he who suffers most has most to give. I think what I'm trying to say is something about protection. Love protects, but it does not insist on its own way. Love endures, dies and hopes. It seems very vulnerable to be a fragile dandelion on the verge of death. Sowing those seeds will mean the end of that flower's life. It seems the self-protection was let go to enter into a greater protection outside of itself for the benefit of the others. I have spent a lot of time protecting myself in my life. I was doing the best I knew how, to protect myself. So I want to be kind to my past self, but now I know that I have a better protection. You see, striving to protect myself from negative things actually did a really tenacious job of choking the growth in my life, much like a wild violet. It looked good to me, but there were consequences personally, relationally, and spiritually. And I would argue physically, mentally, all of the ways. <laughs> The world told me to grow thick skin. Jesus calls me to be softened and made meek. And somehow there is power and glory and joy in it. You see, it's not about the best the world can offer, some fungus hoard in the decay of the dying forest. It is about the relationship with family and the love of his presence. It's about the seeing and the knowing each other, Enough to take your family on a treasure hunt and tell stories. Enough to make mushrooms for the little girl inside of the grown woman in the middle of nowhere. 
I remember hiding under sarcasm and humor and diminishing my true feelings to appear to have it all together. I looked at things that charmed me and kept me numb. I called bad things good. I let honey-covered rot come out of my mouth. I influenced my family and friends with that whitewashed decay or the leaven of the Pharisees. It was not true protection. True protection is submitting to the master gardener to weed out the bad and nourish with the good. True protection is a paradox in the kingdom of God. Vulnerability and death leads to strength and life. I don't find it as coincidence that this morning I stumbled upon an excerpt from the diary of Anne Frank that I haven't read in years. I think her words are beautifully honest and wise. She suffered greatly, and she is loving me 76 years later, still, as these words melt my heart and cut open my thick skin. Her last entry was written on Tuesday, the 1st of August, 1944. It reads, Dearest Kitty, a bundle of contradictions was the end of my previous letter and is the beginning of this one. Can you please tell me exactly what a bundle of contradictions is? What does contradiction mean? Like so many words, it can be interpreted into two ways, contradiction imposed from without and one imposed from within. The former means not accepting other people's opinions, always knowing best, having the last word. In short, all these unpleasant traits for which I'm known. (laughs) The latter for which I'm not known is my own secret. As I've told you many times, I'm split in two. One side contains my exuberant cheerfulness, my flippancy, my joy in life, and above all, my ability to appreciate the lighter side of things. By that I mean not finding anything wrong with flirtations, a kiss, an embrace, an off-color joke. This side of me is usually lying in wait to ambush the other side, which is much purer, deeper, and finer. No one knows Anne's better side, and that's why most people can't stand me. Oh, I can be an amusing clown for an afternoon, but after that, everyone's had enough of me to last a month. Actually, I'm what a romantic movie is to a profound thinker, a mere diversion, a comic interlude, something that is soon forgotten. Not bad, but not particularly good either. I hate having to tell you this, but why shouldn't I admit it when I know it's true? My lighter, more superficial side will always steal a march on the deeper side and therefore always win. You can't imagine how often I've tried to push away this. Anne, which is only half of what is known as Anne, to beat her down, hide her, but it doesn't work, and I know why. I'm afraid that people who know me as I usually am will discover I have another side, a better and finer side. I'm afraid they'll mock me, think I'm ridiculous and sentimental, and not take me seriously. I'm used to not being taken seriously, but only the lighthearted Anne is used to it and can put up with it. The deeper Anne is too weak. If I force the good Anne into the spotlight for even 15 minutes, she shuts up like a clam the moment she's called open to speak and lets Anne number one do the talking. Before I realize it, she's disappeared. So the nice Anne is never seen in company. She's never more a single appearance, though she almost always takes the stage when I'm alone. I know exactly how I'd like to be, how I am on the inside, but unfortunately, I'm only like that with myself. And perhaps that's why... 
Now I'm sure that's the reason why I think of myself as happy on the inside and other people think I'm happy on the outside. I'm guided by the pure and within, but on the outside, I'm nothing but a frolicsome little goat tugging at its tether. As I've told you, what I say is not what I feel, which is why I have a reputation for being boy crazy as well as a flirt, a smart aleck and a reader of romances. The happy-go-lucky Anne laughs, gives a flippant reply, shrugs her shoulders, and pretends she doesn't give a darn. The quiet Anne reacts in just the opposite way. If I'm completely honest, I have to admit that it doesn't matter to me, that I am trying very hard to change myself, but that I'm always up against a more powerful enemy. A voice within me is sobbing. You see, that's what's become of you. You're surrounded by negative opinions, dismayed looks, and mocking faces. People who dislike you and all because you don't listen to the advice of your own better half. Believe me, I'd like to listen, but it doesn't work. Because if I'm a quiet and serious on the outside, everyone thinks I'm putting on a new act and I have to save myself with a joke. And then I'm not even talking about my own family, who assume I must be sick, stuff me with aspirins and sedatives, (laughs) feel my neck and forehead to see if I have a temperature, ask me about my bowel movements, and berate me for being in a bad mood until I just can't keep it up anymore. Because when everybody starts hovering over me, I get cross, then sad, and finally end up turning my heart inside out. The bad part on the outside and the good part on the inside, and I keep trying to find a way to become what I like to be and what I could be, if only there were no other people in the world. Yours, Anne M. Frank. Oh, Anne, we are so broken, aren't we? We need a good Savior to show us the way to the treasure hoard where all our appetites will be satisfied. Let your feet take off running Don't worry who is watching Let him kiss you on the face I do declare these words to you from the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin, producing death in me, through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, Sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not know, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I may myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Whew, I so relate with Anne and the Apostle Paul and um, the words of Jesus when he says, The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I feel that a lot this week. And I'm glad that he endured, endured for us. Here's a little poem I wrote a little while ago. I guess it was a few years ago now. It's called The Secret of the Muscadine. It's based on um, the Muscadine grape, or some people call it a scuppernong. <laughs> it's a really sweet grape grown in the South, and it's delicious. I'll talk a little bit more about it probably next week. But here's the poem. The Secret of the Muscadine. You play the tough guy with that thick skin, thinking no one will choose you over the popular guys. But I know your type. One deep cut and you are exposed for the sweet, soft soul that you are. You remind me of that warm fall day walking in Grandpa's garden when I first had a taste of you. He taught me how to know when you were ready. I was ruined for other fruit. I would have to wait until I found you again. At last, you are here, and I can squeeze every last bit of you until I see you again. Your tear-shaped seeds as Ebenezer's to the joy you bring on this rainy day. Like Grandpa, you know the secret is to take your time and learn to grow. Heaven comes when we let go. All right, guys. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed it. I know I did. Sincerely, Sarah. (laughs) 